hello and welcome, uh, Heather Ferguson. It's a real privilege to, to spend some time with you this um, afternoon. Our mutual friend and colleague, Genevieve, from the Newfeld Institute kind of match made us and, and thought that you might be uh, a good brain to pick around the topic of depression. So I've been doing this podcast series or project called Unpacking Depression. I've done about 15 of these episodes so far and collected a lot of people's stories and thoughts and impressions. And I have um, a lot of interesting new information to consider and also a lot of questions that are unanswered. So um, maybe you can help me with that. I'd love to hear your thoughts, your stories, um, how this fits with your line of thinking and personal experience. So uh, welcome. It's great to have you here on the show. Um, I'll pass it over to you to introduce yourself, but um, for our listeners, if you're new to this, um, the podcast is called Parenting Human Beings, but I'm taking a little hiatus from that and doing this Unpacking Depression podcast series or project, kind of a short-term project over a couple of months where I'm trying to learn more about depression and it was an area that I felt I didn't know a lot about, and I'd collected all of Dr. Newfeld's thoughts about it, and I have these, these, these points, and I have these thoughts and experiences, and I thought that I didn't have, um, that my nervous system didn't really have that sort of shutting down tendency about it, but then I kind of looked back, and I thought, well, maybe I have experienced this, so um, lots of new thoughts, lots of questions, um, but I'm really happy um, that you're here, Heather, to talk. Um, I don't know if I said my name yet. Um, I'm Eugenia McGuire. I'm a social worker based in Alberta. Um, I'm a facilitator with the Newfeld Institute. So I love picking the brains of um, people who have the Newfeld paradigm. And um, Heather, you are a Newfeld faculty. So welcome. And I'll pass it over to you to, to introduce yourself in whatever way feels right. Okay, thank you. Well, it's lovely to be here. Uh, um, <clears throat> and yes, I am on faculty at the Newfeld Institute and um, have served various capacities there in terms of coordinating the Making Sense of Resilience course, which is one of my uh, favorite subjects and, of course, relates to depression. Um, uh, in terms of where do we find our resilience and um, uh, also been helping with various other courses there. Um, I am also a clinical counselor. I work uh, out of Vancouver Island um, in the Cowichan Valley. And since the pandemic, I work exclusively um, online. And I have uh, two children. Uh, well, one is not definitely not a child anymore, and one is almost not a child. I have a 23-year-old daughter and a 17-year-old son. Um, and uh, we love Vancouver Island. I'm a big gardener. I uh, love the ocean. We're all ocean kayakers. Um, and uh, I have taken up the practice of Qigong in the last four years. So that's a big passion of mine. It's a little bit about me. I don't know. I'm happy to answer other questions. Um, but that's a... I feel like we could easily go off topic and talk about any of those things you just said. But um, <laughs> just to bring us back to kind of depression, um, I'll kind of... Yeah, push down my curiosity, <laughs> um, especially around Qigong. I was like, ooh, that sounds amazing. Um, <laughs> So in terms of depression, um, where are you coming from more of sort of a theoretical place or having served clients or do you have any personal um, 
kind of experience or anything like that around depression that um, like where I want to hear your thoughts, but also sort of your, any sort of lived experience that you have um, with the topic. Yeah. Well, I'd say I've been pretty fortunate in my life. I don't think I have really experienced much depression myself. Um, I do have a family member, um, however, who has, and uh, so that, you know, I definitely have that experience of being close to it. Um, I'm very fascinated by it because I think it's very misunderstood. Um, of course, um, I see it in my practice and um, in some of my close friends um, around me. But my mother uh, was amazing in that she gave me the gift of my tears. And um, so although she sometimes, I think, has struggled with depression, um, I have not because I have been able to find my expression and my sadness when I needed to find it. And I think that saved me um, from, from that uh, and continues to serve me in, in so many ways, as you know, from uh, uh, a developmental, uh, emotional uh, perspective. Neuroscience is so clear on this now, but yeah. So my experience is more tangential mm -hmm. um, and then, theoretical and of course clinical yeah yeah there probably isn't a person out there that hasn't been touched in some way shape or form by this yeah so it's a topic that probably almost anybody can speak to um so is your theoretical kind of framework um then that the answer to depression is to go into um into the depth of it if you will and and find the tears and then to come fully out. So sort of that sine wave of emotion, um, yes. Neufeldian theory sort of perspective. Yes, definitely. I love the, the, you know, just the words depress, depression, depress, we're pressing down on. And so from that classical sense, I love looking at it that way because I think it's easy to understand. It's not easy necessarily then to climb out of, but to, to, um, have a sense of that we are pressing down on emotion. That is part of the genesis of this and part of the thing that keeps us stuck when we're there. I mean, of course, I have certainly experienced sadness, melancholy, and, you know, lots of times where my emotions haven't moved as much as they should. Um, but I know that when I'm in that state of flattened affect, of not a lot of emotion, of, of um, feeling flat, of feeling lifeless, of feeling, um, uh, you know, like life has lost its meaning and its purpose in a sense, that I know I need to feel more, not less. And I think that's where this is so misunderstood culturally, especially because we think, oh my goodness, if I'm starting to cry. I mean, I'm always, you know, fascinated by the way that we talk about this culturally, like I had a nervous breakdown or, you know, um, uh, what are the other words that people sometimes say? Just, you know, I had a breakdown or they had a breakdown. Yeah. And oftentimes they are just referring to the fact that they had a lot of emotion and the emotion actually uh, and the expression of it um, is probably what helped them, you know, uh, get better or could help them get better. 
but we don't have that understanding because we're so afraid of the tears. We're so afraid of emotion and we are obsessed, you know, with feeling happy and the whole pursuit of happiness. And we think that we can go at it directly with sort of sweeping this under the rug. But um, when we try and press down and push away from it and um, not feel it, that's where we get into trouble. Mm-hmm. Yes, I definitely agree with you 100%. Um, so I don't know if there's just a lack of words where we're back to this um, situation again, where we lack the words to describe all of the nuanced situations and all the differences. But in all the interviews and conversations I've been having, um, every there's sort of this one overarching label called depression. And there's so such a variety of experiences. So Um, On the one hand, a lot of people report that they have this flattened affect or numbness or no feeling. And then the other half, I guess it's about half and half in my small amount of conversations that I've had, where the other group um, reports that they have an intense amount of pain. And so um, some people really relate to this theory of the sine wave and where, you know, they get lodged sort of somewhere down at the bottom, they can't quite go all the way into adaptation and um, have the tears and then kind of come out. And then other, and they kind of identify with the flattening of the sine wave and the flattened affect, the numbness, the shutting down. And others that say they, they, it's like you cut off the top and they feel a tremendous amount of pain and suffering and sorrow. And it's not that they feel nothing, it's that they feel an amplification of um, so much pain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it's just an issue of we lack, we need more words to describe these different scenarios or something. And it's all falling under this um, umbrella of depression. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think, um, uh, you know, words would help for sure. More Mm -hmm. words would help this. We don't have... uh, perhaps a very nuanced language for it. I think the pain, you know, I know um, for many people, they're experiencing the pain and, and you know, this uh, I'm sure from your um, exposure to the relational developmental approach, but oftentimes there can be this pain and this weepiness. So it looks like they're having their feelings and people will say, well, I cry all the time but they're still holding back. And so they're stuck in the pain of it, mm. but it's not, it's not reaching the bottom from which it feels terrible. It's like they've gone you know, three quarters of the way down and there's a perseveration there. It's stuck in that place. And, you know, just even thinking, um, you know, Qigong or Chinese medicine, what is health? It's movement. It's, you know, we don't want stuckness. So there's a stuckness there and we need more flow, so to speak, um, which isn't a very nuanced word, but we need more movement of the emotion. So oftentimes with the weepiness, if we invite it to actually come more, because people are in that state often afraid to feel deeper afraid to feel more. So they're feeling it. Um, and it's, it's horrible. And it's actually, you know, I think it's so sad in a way because we stay stuck in that pain rather than inviting it a little deeper 
and moving through it, but it's scary to go down there. And that's why, you know, we're not really meant to do this alone. This is meant to be a journey that we're accompanied on in some way that there is someone there with their arm, at least metaphorically around us um, to say, I'm here and I'll pull you out if you get, you know, stuck down there. And, um, and so oftentimes it's, it's counterintuitive and it certainly doesn't, um, doesn't sound inviting to go more into that pain because I think about, you know, there's, there's um, many people who have spoken to this, you know, we've already borne the pain. It's just, we haven't felt it all. Mm -hmm. And in the feeling of it, we're released from it. But when we're um, still hanging, you know, in uh, hanging out in that spot, it's very painful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess both of those um, scenarios do fit with that idea of the, the sine wave of emotion, whether it's that the kind of nervous system has pressed down upon it and flattened the affect entirely, or whether the person has just kind of gotten stuck somewhere near the bottom and they're, they're putting the brakes on, or it's kind of all sort of crystallizing, I guess, or they're trying to scramble back up the sine wave as opposed to going deeper into and turning toward and, and all of that. Yeah. The other thing I've been really kind of trying to wrap my head around is um, maybe you can help me parse some of this out is just the idea of the defenses. So um, to, to really kind of um, do that Coles notes version of the, you know, numb out, tune out and back out um, in your mind, is is depression kind of um, an exacerb like a chronic numb out defense situation, or is there sort of more to it? Oh, that's a good question. I haven't really thought it through in terms mm. of those three dynamics, but um, I could think it through out loud. I mean, certainly mm -hmm. the numbing out applies because we're not feeling. You know, when we don't feel, then we can't be moved by the emotion and the wisdom of the emotion, the way it's trying to move us. The emotions are always trying to move us towards health. So if we numb out, then um, we are, uh, we're not going to be able to be moved in the same way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and if we tune out, um, we can't read the signs. Uh, therefore, I don't know how much your listeners would understand what you're mm -hmm. You've already talked about these concepts, but if we tune out the things that would make us feel bad. So if I'm going onto the playground and I'm in school, let's say, you know, I'm a sixth grader and I'm going onto the playground and I can't see the lack of invitation in other people's eyes because it would be too much for me. It would be too wounding. I'm not going to get the the feedback, so to speak, um, I'm not going to be able to feel the lack of invitation, which of course is very wounding, um, depending on how attached I am and how much I'm pursuing those uh, relationships. So if I'm tuning it out, then I'm not going to feel it, then I'm not going to be moved by the feeling, then I'm not going to be delivered to the other side. Um, uh, which, of course, I, you know, I'm imagining you may have talked about this, you know, with it with the going down into the um, the depths of our emotion, our sadness, will have this natural bounce back. We don't have to will ourselves out, but it will happen naturally. And then if we back out um, of relationships and, 
you know, um, again, all of those things are employing the defenses because the feelings are too much. I mean, we our defenses are there to protect our brains from being too wounded. And our brains won't want to, um, you know, uh, walk into a situation where, where it's too overwhelming. So if we're employing any of those defenses, it means things have been too much. It's so much I can't afford to feel the vulnerability of my experience. And to move through depression or, um, or sadness and melancholy or uh, anger or frustration, we need to be moved by our emotion. So I don't know if that's getting to what you're um, asking there, but that's, you know, my first thoughts on it is that all of those are going to hamper our ability to move towards emotional health. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I'm just kind of curious about whether, like, are the defenses a smaller part of depression? Under, are they kind of like involved with uh, depression, which is the sort of larger state or are they simply just sort of the de- depressed state is the defense, the numb out? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm like, I know there's more things to be parsed out here because um, when I think of what attracted me to Dr. Neufeld's work was that he did have these overarching, sim- you know, very big picture, simple statements about how things work. Um, but then he also goes into these, Um, every little piece of it and unpacks it all. And so I'm like, I know there's more to unpack here. I just can't quite um, figure out what it is, right? But the more conversations I have, the more more food for thought anyway. Yeah, well, I I do think that um, the defenses necessarily are a part of depression, you know, um, because we're not feeling. Fully. Yeah. And if if there weren't defenses, we would be naturally moved to be feeling the things that have hurt us, the things that have wounded us, the things that, um, you know, um, have caused us to defend. Mm-hmm. So um, to me, it's it's naturally part and parcel of it. If we take away the defenses and I'm able to feel vulnerably, then I will still feel sad. I will still feel sometimes very melancholy. It's, it's not that we can um, avoid, you know. I, I think this is where language really, we do need more words because mm-hmm. depression, you know, um, can mean, as you say, so many different things and, you know, a different thing clinically than the way it's, you know, I'm depressed, we say all the time. Um, I mean, I even use that word casually. So, oh, I'm feeling kind of depressed. I'm not clinically depressed. I am, you know, uh, maybe not moving, not being moved by, not feeling fully the things that are coming my way that um, are hard to feel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Defenses, then we would just be feeling them. But our, our defenses are there for a reason and they need to be respected. And of course, sometimes, um, you know, they get stuck, but we all need those defenses to operate in the world. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in terms of like the clinical versus sort of these like depression states that are, that we can normalize and, and um, we've all experienced, you know, feeling like 
our emotions being pressed down upon temporarily um, and whatnot. Um, do you think it's the same underlying theory um, that would apply to both of those situations? It's just more on a, a gradient or a scale of severity where a state of clinical depression would, um, it's the same underlying principles, but it's just that that person's experience is far more severe because it, the situation is more chronic, like the emotions are stuck more chronically, um, or is it, or, or do you think maybe like different principles might apply to those two, two different scenarios? Because that's something that Gordon has kind of said at one point. He just sort of like made this comment one time uh, a couple of years ago, actually at the um, conference where he was like, uh, what I'm talking about is not it's a little bit different than the clinical state of depression. And he's just sort of left it at that where he didn't really explain what he meant. And I've been thinking about that for all these years and going, is it the same principles or is, is there, is it wrong to apply these principles to a more severe state of clinical depression? Mm, good question. Well, I'd have to ask him. He was meaning, mm. I think he would say, and I would say that I think the dynamic is the same, but when there's been such a stuckness, you know, for a long time and it's become chronic, it is harder and there's more to unpack and, you know, um, whether there are other uh, dynamics that get in play as that, um, become so stuck I think it's more that you know there becomes such a neural rut and uh you know that whole expression neurons that fire together wire together and so the wiring in the brain can actually you know change and um so they're you know it's much harder to work with it's not so easy as I'll just go have a good cry you know and um, that's going to solve things. Um, and, and it's not that easy with just, you know, a, a, a first time or a new depression either in the sense that it's not one cry that's going to do this. It's, you know, multiple waves of this journey that probably need to be taken. Um, but for some folks who, you know, have, I have worked with people who have experienced depression since, you know, they were children and now are in their seventies. And that's, you know, I think it's a, it's a lot harder um, to unpack, but I think the dynamic is still the same. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Um, and I wouldn't say I'm an expert in that, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Okay. No, that makes sense. I kind of was kind of leaning toward that, that line of thinking as well. And maybe um, if I could speculate why he said that, it would be that um, maybe he was just not trying to honor the severity of some people's neurological superhighways <laughs> where, you know, that change is possible, um, but it's, you know, like trying to make a road with a machete through the jungle versus, you know, the super like driving down a highway, right? But. I think he's also likely differentiating between the classic flattened affect uh, um, psychodynamic, psychoanalytic um, uh, definition of depression and the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and what mm -hmm. they, you know, classify as depression and all the different aspects of it. I mean, of course, all those features can come into play, but I think that's partly maybe what he was speaking to would be my guess. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And it's so tough to have these conversations because it's applying this other lens, the Newfeld lens to, or the, you know, just attachment and developmental lens to the language that is from the disorder model, right? So it's kind of like trying to crash these two things together that don't actually really belong together, right? So, yeah, well, and again, you know, this approach would say this is not disorder. This is the brain working as it should to protect us when it's too much from feeling vulnerable things that, you know, uh, would wound too much and we don't feel capable of feeling. That's the brain's job. So that's a brain that's working. Um, and unfortunately, these situations are meant to be more temporary. You know, we're meant to have a rest from that kind of a situation where the wounding is is uh, happening. And for, I think for a lot of people who are seriously depressed, there, there wasn't a break in the wounding. Mm-hmm. And so that's why the depression becomes so entrenched because they don't have a chance for the defenses to come down. They don't, there's no invitation for the expression of emotion. If they expressed, say as a child, you know, their frustration, because oftentimes to get, you know, when I work a lot with parents of uh, children and, you know, parents will complain that their child is acting out and frustrated and, and attacking and things like that. And um, but then there'll be potentially a point where the child might start saying things like, I hate myself. I wish I was never born. And, you know, I want to kill myself. And that to me is a real red flag because it's showing that the attacking is now starting to come towards the self rather than outward in expression. And so that to me is where I say to a parent, I would much rather have my child kicking and screaming and yelling at me, uh, you know, within a container, within, you know, I'm not saying that they can do this anywhere, anytime, anyplace, anyhow, but that we want to invite the expression of emotion because the alternative is they start attacking themselves. And that's where depression starts to take root. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot harder to get out of depression than it is to deal with a frustration problem that's gone foul in terms of this attacking energy. So um, why was I saying that? I mean, you know, we, we need to have some respite from the wounding world, but for some children, there is not that opportunity and there is not the invitation to express their frustration. And if they cannot express their frustration, if that's not allowed, um, whether it's it's a clean, you know, uh, responsible way of I'm frustrated, I don't like that, daddy, um, or whether it's, you know, a young, untempered child who doesn't have that ability to say it in words, but, you know, has punches in them or kicks in them or hits in them when they're little, um, bites in them, anything, um, then they will likely start to press down on that frustration. And that's where, uh, you know, this takes root. And if there's never an invitation for that expression of the frustration, then you've got someone who has a never-ending setup for depression. Mm -hmm. So I would assume often that someone who is coming uh, to me who is depressed 
has a lot of frustration in them that has not been expressed. And so oftentimes one of the first signs of health is actually, let's say, it, let's say it's a teenager, you know, hasn't been going on their whole entire life, but they start to unthaw, there starts to be some room in them. Probably what's first going to come out is frustration. And that's not that attractive to a parent, to a teacher, to adults in the world. But if, you know, you know, this child has been depressed and now they're, now they're lashing out a little bit. Well, that's actually a sign of greater health, but it doesn't look healthy. It doesn't Mm -hmm. look civilized at this point yet. We need to, you know, uh, help with that, but uh, it's a lot better than being depressed. So true. Going inward. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really good. you uh, I'm really glad you brought it back to that, actually. Um, for some reason, that really wasn't at the forefront of how I've been thinking about this. Um, but as you were describing that, um, I was thinking about all of the people whose stories um, of depression um, involved them having suicidal ideation at times um, and struggling with that. And that seems to go kind of um, hand in hand with depression. And I was kind of imagining the brain um, having its moments where that frustration is trying to move to expression, but then it's being sent back at the self, right? And so this kind of urge, um, the suicidal urge, was actually this impulse inside of them for that emotion to move just a little bit, but it couldn't. It couldn't move to expression. It, it got immediately sent back to, you know, the self, right? And then. The depression sets in and kind of um, presses back down upon it. But then this emotion, this frustration is trying to move the person, but it can only go so far as to, you know, send the energy right back to the self, right? Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. With the suicidal ideation, I mean, that is frustration. That at its root is usually the, the emotion of frustration could be layered on top with anger, but that has not moved. And so it starts to be turned towards the self. And that's why, you know, little kids will say it. And it's not to say that it's, um, you know, little kids will say a lot of things that uh, are alarming, but don't mean, but it's a little bit of a, you know, a move in that direction. If a child says, I hate myself, I wish I was never born. I want to see that child. I'd much rather see that child saying, I hate you, mommy. You know, I mean, in a moment, <laughs> not that I want them to hate their mommy, but um, that they might be have room to express that, you know, when I say no, you cannot, um, you know, go to your friend's house for a sleepover, and they're desperate, you know, to do that, they might say, I hate you, mommy, because in the moment, that's how they feel in their untempered, um, uh, immature state, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we want to give room to the expression of and ideally clean frustration. So I think this can be so misunderstood when we talk in this way. Um, But, you know, we want a child to be able to say, I don't like that. This doesn't work for me. I want you to say, yes, you're saying no, you know, all of those things. And if they can't do that, then, and that happens time and time and time and time again. And let's say a child wants to be good, but they're they're young, they're five years old, they can't, you know, do what mommy is asking them to do. And they get frustrated sometimes and it blows up. And but they feel terrible about that because, you know, on the one hand, they were upset. But on the other hand, they want to be good for their parent. 
but they just aren't mature enough yet, they're going to start blaming and criticizing themselves. And so, you know, there's all kinds of ways, there's all kinds of signs, I guess I want to say, little um, steps towards depression that um, if we could circumvent, if we could intervene then, so much easier than, Mm -hmm. you know, it's been going on for a year or four years or 40 years. Yeah. But we often miss those signs. And when I have worked with people who say are in their 60s, 70s, um, who have been depressed for a long time, they can, you know, as we talk, trace back to, yes, not having a voice, not being not being um, invited to express what wasn't working, not, um, you know, not allowed to talk about their frustration. Mm-hmm. This is such um, depression and, and anxiety, of course, but depression is such a buzz topic and it's such a, um, it's something that people are interested in. I feel like um, all of this information is so relevant that's within all the Newfield courses and all of that, but you really would have to kind of dig for it, right? In terms of depression, I feel like there's there's a place or a need for someone, one of you faculty members or something to put out um, whether it's, you know, an article or a checklist or something that says, you know, these are the signs of depression because we want everything to be tidy and our societal modus operandi is to just press down upon it. But, and then we're like, but why all this depression, you know, like. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting point. It's, it's implicit in all the material and the courses, mm-hmm. but you need to understand, uh, you need to make the connections. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's not so explicit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Totally. Um, so some, as you were just talking there, um, I was thinking about um, the brain's mechanism to, to press down upon, right? So if the, if the frustration and that type of expression isn't allowed or welcome in the relationship, how the brain will send it back to the self or press down upon it. Um, and I was kind kind of trying to understand whether you think um, that the state of depression is is more about um, the brain trying to survive um, where it's kind of like almost like in remission where like you know it, it tried to move to expression it tried um, there was no room for it um, and then these defenses kind of get stuck and they're chronic and the, you know the feelings aren't moving and then the it's kind of like a hunkering down survival kind of state, or if it's more about the attachment invitation and the depression is trying to squeeze the child or adult for that matter into that, um, into the attachment invitation, right? Like no emotions, no messiness is allowed here. So we're just going to kind of reduce you. Um, into this invitation or, or, or both, or are those kind of the, the same thing? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, As you speak of it, I, my, uh, you know, answer that comes to both of those questions is yes, yes, the defenses get stuck and yes, yes, the, um, if the invitation isn't there and the child is wanting to be in that relationship, trying to fit into that narrow invitation of you, you know, I only invite you into my presence if you're kind or if you're 
good or if you're not loud or, you know, whatever it is, then that has a huge influence on a, on a child or on a human, you know, I mean, it can be an adult too in a relationship where, um, you know, if I'm pursuing someone uh, to be close with and they don't tolerate any kind of frustration, then the instincts would be to press down on that um, as well. So both things, mm-hmm. I mean, I would, um, I need to think this through a little bit more. So I'm talking, uh, without having thought it through, but you know, if the invitation is less, but I have inside of me that emergent energy that says, hold on, but wait a second, I need to live my life out loud. I need to declare myself, you know, I, I don't want to be, um, pressing down on my own uh, feelings, on my own expression in order to fit into this relationship. I mean, a child doesn't have that luxury, but as an adult, um, then perhaps I can find my way through and, you know, not go down that route. But if I have the defenses there as well, my own discomfort or my own history of wounding when, you know, that's not invited, then I'm going to be more likely to press down on so the combination of the two is Mm. more deadly (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely and then of course the the attachment conscience that is kind of imprinted and and when you're an adult you may not have it it doesn't occur to you to even go outside of that initial attachment to invitation where yeah especially if we don't know about this if we don't know that the answer is actually going to be more feeling more expression um yeah, yeah, and many parents don't understand that either. And when they do, of course, they change, you know, uh, recognizing that, ah, this isn't going to be my child being a yeller and a screamer all, they li- all their life. They are young. They need to get it out. Things aren't working for them. They're comfortable with me. It needs expression. And then they will come back naturally to uh, more equilibrium or uh, more tempered expression you know, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I think that's where if if this was more known, because there's so many programs out there about, you know, change your thinking and cognitive behavioral approaches, and I just don't think it gets at this in the same way, the same mm-hmm. way at the root of it and making the transformation. Mm-hmm, more people understand and the earlier of course um that change is made the the greater likelihood for emotional health and well-being Mm -hmm. yeah yeah well I definitely have noticed the theme around people's stories where they are in the work mode where um they're trying not to be depressed and that seems to be the sort of um, superficial therapeutic approach that's like you must just get on top of this you must stay on top of this stay happy stay like don't let don't let yourself go down yeah. and just work 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 at it keep your thoughts really you know positive yeah. s- s- float on the top <laughs> yeah yeah and oh my gosh it sounds exhausting just as you talk about it I think about if I was depressed and, you know having to I mean it, it remind for me you know I was uh uh, loved horses when I was a kid and um, 
like to ride horses, but I was scared of them. And I remember people telling me, you know, uh, but if they're scared of, if you're scared, they can feel that. So I was trying to not be scared, trying to not be scared, trying not to be scared. And it's so much work. And I think about how, I mean, depression and part of its nature is it's exhausting because the life energy is not moving again. There's that stuckness you think of, you know, Chinese medicine, uh, acupuncture, we want, you know, energy to move. And, um, you know, but we're saying, but don't feel too much. Don't feel, you know, stay on top, stay on top. The amount of energy that takes to kind of keep a positive frame of mind, you know, uh, don't make a mountain out of a molehill, keep, you know, doing your affirmations or whatever. I mean, that just sounds so exhausting to me. (laughs) And, you know, I've got a reasonable amount of energy. So how much more so for someone who's already depressed? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and and it can it can work in some superficial way, as you say, for a short time, but it doesn't get at the root of it. And so I think then they just revisit it, and you know, and the, and then becomes the self blame of oh, I'm not good at this. What's wrong with me? I can't get myself out. You know, all of that um, negative talk, which feeds the depression. It becomes this self reinforcing snowball that very hard to get out of. Mm-hmm. Well, I've also heard two different sort of perspectives, uh, both of which I resonated with, and I'm so curious to get your thoughts on this. So um, there's this idea of, you know, uh, the emotion as a sine wave, right? And if we just go to the bottom, it, you know, there is a bottom at some point, and that it will naturally transmute in into the upward swing of things, right? And this is the concept of resilience, right? We go to the very bottom of anything, and we find that we're in a world of polarity and opposites and paradoxes and you go to the bottom of something else and it naturally turns into um, its opposite. Right. Um, But I've also heard this perspective and, and experienced something along these lines as well, where um, there there's sort of this idea that there's um, states that you can go into that are these infinite wells of suffering. And that if we, if we, that we can kind of get stuck in that. Whereas if we're trying to go to the bottom, but we're actually just getting really lost in a realm that is potentially just infinite suffering. Um, so those are, that's an interesting paradox. I've heard the second one more in the context of like spiritual teachings or those kinds of things where it's like kind of like the create your own reality sort of approach, but um, less superficial, like less, kind of affirmation based and more about, um, you know, just, you know, that there, there may not be a bottom um, to it. And like, yes, you know, honor the suffering, but also like cap it off, like don't get kind of lost there forever. So are you thinking of like Buddhism, life is suffering, um, that kind of um, spiritual I guess I'm kind of not, not so much Buddhism. I don't think, um, I'm not sure where the roots of this thinking comes from exactly, but, um, I'll give you an example. So let's say a person is experiencing a deep well of grief, um, because let's say that, you know, the state of their, our world or something, they think, you know, it's absolutely, um, you know, they feel hopeless. They think that there's too many things wrong or like, you know, this, I get stuck in this thinking sometimes too, where I'm like, wow, everything is wrong in society. 
(laughs) when I know, you know, from this developmental approach, I'm like, geez, we're just doing everything wrong. Mm -hmm. And, and this idea of like, I feel all of this pain for the, the state of our world and that, um, and it's unending. The situation is unending. Um, the amount of stories of suffering are unending. Do I, do I turn toward that and, and like, just try to find the bottom or do I kind of turn away from that and say, you know what, that's endless. So. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, do I indulge in all the negative stories out there um, or, or not? Well, I mean, the way I think about it is, to the extent that we are aware of, sensitive to, mm-hmm. uh, uh, educated about all of the woes of the world, um, is the extent to which we will need to have a good, strong emotional capacity to feel. Because the more that we turn towards it, the more that we need to feel our grief about it. And as long as we can balance those two, I think mm-hmm. we'd be okay. But, I mean, there's lots of people out there, um, Joanna Macy, um, who uh, yeah. have been talking about this for years and years about grief um, and needing to feel and express that well of sorrow. Um because I think if, you know, a lot of people who are activists, say, go out into the world and um, burn out very quickly. And I think because they're facing all of this stuff without the prerequisite being able to have some balance back. So I think in those cases, you know, there needs to be some balance. Mm-hmm. And the balance certainly of the, uh, the equivalent feeling. It's like as a therapist, if I'm dealing with a lot of clients at a certain time that their stories are really heartbreaking, I need to make sure that I make space for my own feelings about that mm-hmm. so that I don't burn out and uh, I'm no good to anyone anymore, uh, mm-hmm. my clients or my family or myself, you know. So to the extent that we are exposed is the extent that we need to feel. And there's only so much we can feel. We cannot, the brain cannot do this all the time. Otherwise, the defenses will have to come up. So that's where it's great if you can know your own defenses, know what the early warning signs are and say, who, okay, I either need to stop facing towards that bad news or I need to go and do some serious, uh, you know, making space and invitation for my own emotional response to it. Mm -hmm. One of the two. And, um, you know, if I don't know that, then the chances for getting stuck are much greater. That is a beautiful answer. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's perfect. And there's just, there's so many paradoxes as we, as we walk this. And um, another reason why our culture is um, toxic then would be that we are, our nervous systems aren't designed to take in this much. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, we're just exposed to so much. I mean, you know, think about it. Uh, Historically, we'd be exposed to our maybe a hundred people that we'd know and interact with. Uh, We could contain that hundred people's stories, you know, Um, you know, we'd know what the weather is, what the, you know, circumstances are in our village or our, you know, local area. Now we just know all of the world's woes, all of the people all around the world. Um, and, and there is so much, of course, to be concerned about. I have a 
good friend who uh, works for an organization called the Good Grief Network, and it's mm. all about um, uh, climate change and that, you know, if you're going to be involved in climate change, we also need to be involved in grief work. So um, that's huge. I think it's going to be a burgeoning field because, you know, we're facing a lot um, in that regard. So, you know, the same is true with the pandemic and other big um, world events that these are bigger, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. contend with emotionally in our, our nervous systems. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Dr. Newfeld often says there's a genetic drift towards more sensitivity, and yet we're bombarded by more uh, input. So those two yeah. things really aren't a match. Yeah. Are you familiar with Francis Weller? Yes. Yes. yes it's so be He's beautiful as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love, love his work. Yeah, there's a lot of good people writing about this these mm -hmm. days in different um, contexts and coming at it from different points of view. And it's not, you know, a direct clinical sort of uh, thing about depression, but definitely this bigger uh, global um, experience and you know, grief. Mm -hmm. We need to, um, the way I think about it, we need to have the neural grooves, not ruts, but the neural <laughs> flexibility to feel more essentially, you know, now um, for all of these things that are in our consciousness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the phrase ignorance is bliss is coming to mind, not in a bad way, but I think of, you know, children who are held in their parents womb right where the parent is alpha and protects the child from seeing things that are um beyond their you know maturity level or, yeah. or that they should be seeing and i feel like us as adults kind of had that um protection within our culture or how we were organized in these small tribes where we didn't have to think about literally everything in the world we had that you know limited amount of information there was the myths and the constructs about you know that kind of took care of anything that went wrong um even the relationship we had with death or that many cultures have with death where you know even if you know people do die in the tribe or family members at least we have this you know they had this framework where um you know they were going to a good place or you know something like that right where at least uh, there was always some sort of cultural protection um even if we didn't even if it was from a state of ignorance let's say um mm -hmm. I, I would argue that that's probably a bad label but just sort of this this shield of protection where you know we don't have to know everything we're actually a little bit protected by not having to know everything yeah well and this is where screens come into it you know I mean, it's not just our children, but particularly our children. We were always meant to be the buffers to the world and to be the gatekeepers of what information, when, you know, when are they developmentally ready? And it's not an age and stage thing. It's, is my child ready to hear about, you know, um, this uh, atrocity that happened in the news or, you know, um, what Aunt Margaret's going through or whatever it is, we were meant to decide and uh, protect our children from what is too much uh, for them to bear so that their defenses didn't have to come up and protect them against a world. So many children now are walking around with a lot of big defenses, 
you know, because they cannot handle, you know, Mm -hmm. knowing about, you know, uh, especially early in the pandemic, climate change, all of that kind of stuff. And I think we have it really wrong in, in our education system, in our museums, you know, things where we're educating young children about climate change or what to eat or, you know, um, all kinds of things which aren't child business, Mm -hmm. you know, so their defenses need to come up. And then also, even as adults, as you know, (laughs) I'm sure you have had this experience. I mean, you know, we also are bombarded by more information on screens than our our nervous systems are uh, capable uh, prepared to meant to take in and so yeah we need to we need to find ways I think to limit that um, mm-hmm. earlier question you know um, so that uh, we can still live in this world and um, and and be healthy and functional in it yeah exactly not be defended and be able to have whatever we're allowing in flow through us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm mindful of the time. I know you, um, you know, need to get going and um, I could ask you a million more questions. (laughs) We could probably stay here for another eight hours, but um, that probably is a good wrap up point, really kind of zooming out and going to the cultural big perspective. And that seems to always be where I land is, um, you know, like, look at all these issues with our society. Um, but any other comments or anything you'd want to add or anything I didn't think to to ask you that is kind of burning <laughs> that you want to share? Oh, no, I don't really have. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful conversation for me to have and to think about some of your questions and uh you know, yes, putting this together in some way that's more tangible for people um, in terms of, you know, sort of depression proofing ourselves or children. It's an interesting idea, um, but I appreciate the conversation and the, the questions. Um, it's got me thinking. That is an excellent title for a book or an article or, you know, an assessment package or something, right? You know how professionals love those and the checklists and all of that, right? Depression-proof your child. I feel like, um, you know, you or maybe Deborah McNamara or somebody should should take that on because it really is a hot, hot topic. And um, yeah, I think that might kind of draw people in, right? They're like, I don't want my child to get depressed, but... Um, we have, but they haven't connected the dots um, that, you know, I have to actually let them have that tantrum when they're (laughs) two and three and four years old and the frustration has to come out, Um, you know, back to the sort of uh, steps of emotional maturation, right? And we're not connecting those dots as a society. I mean, most people aren't even hearing the messaging about about emotional expression and development and all that stuff, but maybe the the depression subject matter would kind of draw draw more people in mm-hmm. yeah yeah and all the little exits there are to uh distract us from feeling to make me think of that you know uh, oh yes uh hopefully for adults uh only but alcohol drugs all those kind of things that are off ramps to this uh path of emotional 
feeling, emotional expression, um, all of that. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a doorway to a lot of different conversations. That's (laughs) absolutely. Well, thank you very much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I love speaking with folks who have this newfound paradigm. It um, it's really helping me learn and put the pieces together and, I'm still going to keep thinking about this and uh, yeah, I'm kind of hoping that maybe sometime uh, Dr. Newfeld will want to expand more upon it. He's said things, tidbits that I've been collecting. Um, but yes, thank you for lending me your brain for the hour. And uh, I hope you have a lovely holiday and um, I look forward to the next time I see you again. Great. Thanks, Eugenia. Okay, thanks again. And thanks to those of you who've been tuning in and and listening here. Take care. Bye-bye.